Hey folks, Scott Weingart here, and welcome to On Deeper Reflection, my intermittent variable companion podcast on philosophy, psychology, performance, and productivity. Today, we have a very special guest, Brian Johnson. Brian is founder and CEO of Heroic, an organization that has as its goal to bring flourishing to 51% of the population by 2051, and he recently wrote a book that I have read that I have loved called Arate. Uh, It is just like heroic about combining the most modern science with ancient wisdom to help people become happier in the sense of eudaimonia, flourishing. And Brian and I talk about issues particular to professionals, physicians, but I think anyone in terms of finding joy in life and avoiding burnout and finding your best possible self. I think you'll enjoy it. I know I did recording it. And let's get right into it. All right, Brian, who are you and what do you do? Scott, great to be here. I'm uh, Brian Johnson, founder and CEO of a company called Heroic Public Benefit Corporation and author of Arate, Activate Your Heroic Potential. I help people, I integrate ancient wisdom in modern science, and I help people move from theory to practice to mastery is the basic idea so we can change the world. I'm unapologetic in my ambition. I want to help create a world in which 51% of humanity is flourishing by 2051. So thrilled to be here. Thank you so much, Brian. Now, I loved your book and you named your book Arate and we're both students of Stoicism. And the traditional translation of that is excellence or virtue, but you had a better translation, I think, for Arate. Why don't you tell us what that is? I appreciate that frame. And, and the way I'm describing it now is, look, if you asked the ancient Greek philosophers like Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, and as you mentioned, the ancient Roman Stoics, like Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus, and Seneca, how to live a good life, they'd answer you in a single word. And that word is arte. So we directly translate it as virtue or excellence, but it has a deeper meaning, something closer to expressing the best version of yourself moment to moment. And the way I like to frame it up is if you're capable of being this in any given moment and you're actually being this, and there's a gap between who you could have been and who you actually were, it's in that gap in which regret, anxiety, disillusionment exists. When we close the gap and live with arate, there's no room for that negative stuff. You feel a deep sense of joy, meaning, and purpose. And the Greeks had a word for that as well, which was Aristotle's summum bonum, the greatest good of life is to experience what he called eudaimonia, which we translate as happiness, but means something closer to flourishing. And again, you do that by living with Arte. I love that so much. Brian, so many of the clinicians I work with as a coach and then I teach on my podcast are, and the word we use in medicine is burnt out. They're just miserable. And I think part of that is the job has gotten harder, but part of it's just the world we live in right now. And so there's a lot of people that are just experiencing levels of sadness and even misery what answer do you have for these people, Brian? If you could solve flourishing to 51% of the population, you could probably easily fix burnout as well. So tell us what your answer is to that. We're going we're gonna to need to address it, especially among those on the front lines, doing what you all are doing. First, again, I come back to gratitude. I think that it's easy to take what you and everyone that you serve does for granted, which is part of where the burnout and despair comes from. No one's sending you long thank you notes. You know what I mean? Oh, thank you, bless you. They're just complaining about things that didn't go perfectly when you just saved their life. That's tough. Then what immediately arises for me, and again, I'm still breathing a little heavy because I just got off of a quick row. I'm busy now and I've got five minutes, seven minutes to go get a quick workout in. 
But I think one of the big challenges, and the irony here is that you all are saving lives and serving us in the medical profession, but we're not doing a good job of making sure you're taking care of yourself. And so the basic fundamentals, eating, moving, sleeping, breathing, focusing your attention are important for everybody. And again, the stats are crazy. I gave a keynote for a a very large bank on mental health day, 80% of us are suffering from anxiety, depression, burnout, call what you want. This is an invisible disability that's pandemic. But I, I think of the fact that science shows, and again, it's common sense, but your physiology drives a lot more of your psychology than you may be aware of. So if you aren't taking care of the most basic fundamentals, again, the eating, the moving, and the sleeping in particular, and the sleeping in particular for you all, especially the night shifts. This is a grind. And, and I don't care who you are. I don't care what you do. If you aren't getting the requisite seven plus hours of sleep a night, science is unequivocal. Your odds of being the human being that can get by on less than seven hours of sleep. Matthew Walker and his great book, Why We Sleep, which you know is the one book I recommend everybody reads that goes through our coach program. The odds of you being able to get by and perform at your best and not be burnt out are the same as your odds of being struck by lightning in your lifetime, that you have a genetic mutation that allows you to, one in 11,000. But we take sleep for granted. We take good nutrition for granted. But again, our physiology is driving a lot more of our psychology than we think. A little mundane point, your gut produces 80 to 85 or 90% of your body's serotonin. Who, who's teaching us that? And what you eat is creating that serotonin or not. So the excess sugar, the excess processed and refined foods and bless our medical system. But I look at the cafeterias and I'm like, oh my God, what are we doing here? Oh, oh shoot, we're saving people's lives and then we're sending them off to go come back because we're not teaching them these basic things and the individuals serving them aren't practicing these most basic fundamental things. So it's not surprising that we're gonna experience the burnout then you throw in, oh yeah, and the world, just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, just goes next level in chaos and despair and just truly terror. Absolutely. One of my favorite framings of what I've heard from you in the course so far, and you mentioned in the book as well, a lot of my clients, we do inner voice work because they have negative voices. They have voices that are telling them they're not good enough, a voice of perfectionism telling them that they're not meeting their capabilities. And I think it's a real wear on their system. And now you had a framing of, your demon and your daemon next to each other speaking to you and which one you should listen to. Maybe talk a little bit about that, Brian. Yeah, let's go back to the summum bonum, the phrase Aristotle used, the greatest good of life is to live with what they called eudaimonia, right? So eudaimonia is good soul, eudaimon. So they like to say that we all had a guiding spirit, that mini me in our head, but it's really the best version of me. And you gotta pay attention to that best version of yourself. Briefly, the Greeks called it your daimon, guiding spirit, called it your genius. So daimon, genius. Everyone, you weren't a genius. Everyone was said to have a genius who guided you. So if you did something great, it wasn't you who did it. It was your genius or your daimon. So the whole game of life is to connect to that best version of yourself. Now, the daimon is the best version of you. The diminutive of daimon is demon. That's literally where the word demon comes from. It's the diminutive of daimon. So it's the less than awesome guiding spirit. So we need to be very mindful of the fact that we have these competing voices, call it the two wolves in your head, the fear wolf, the courage or love wolf, and then step back and notice which voice is running the show. 
it's a very simplistic thing to say, but it's also a very powerful thing to get very good at noticing and then choosing to do what you know is best for you in service to something that you're committed to. And again, it starts with the fundamentals, eating, moving, sleeping, putting your phones away when you're with your kids, going to bed at a certain time, not indulging in more emails, social media, or binge watching, drinking, or eating, all the things that we all do in our own idiosyncratic ways. But those two voices are always there. They've always been there. And that's one of the biggest challenges in life is to get very good at listening to the right voice. Now, amongst the Stoics, I think you and I both have the same favorite based on what you wrote in the book, which is Epictetus. And Epictetus dealt so much with agency. And I think people could really develop a resilience to a difficult situation through Stoicism and especially through the works of Epictetus. At what point does that resilience keep people in a circumstance they maybe should make a change in? Because if you develop ultimate resilience, then you will stay in a bad situation maybe far longer than you should. So how do people find the dividing line? Yeah. Then we come back to the cardinal virtues, wisdom, discipline, love, and courage, or how I adapt the four cardinal virtues of every ancient wisdom tradition and faith tradition, for that matter, in modern science. But you got to have wisdom. So you got to know the game you're playing, how to play it well. And sometimes staying in something isn't the wise course. In fact, it's a foolish course, which would be the the vice alternative to wisdom. So there's always a, a vice of deficiency of wisdom. And there's also a vice of excess. Actually, there isn't a vice of excess of wisdom, but you can express this commitment level where you're not committed enough or you're too committed. And each situation is going to demand a different perspective, of course. But I like to go past resilience to anti-fragility. So I like to use the idea that there's something that's much more powerful than resilience, which is you use life's challenges to get stronger. They literally make you stronger, like going to the gym and lifting real weights, you get stronger. So if I'm in a situation that that is pushing me and stressing me, I want to step back. And first and foremost, I want to double down on my fundamentals. I want to have my physiology dialed in so I'm connected to my best self and ask myself, what do I want in life? And is this supporting me in that? Or how do I shape this current experience so it is supportive for me rather than maladaptive? Or do I leave it and do something different? But I think that that agency, as you said, is important. And just to make it explicit, um, Epictetus, the ancient Stoics, influenced everyone from Viktor Frankl, who chose to play his role well in the horrors of the concentration camps as a therapist supporting those in the camp. He was a practicing Stoic. And the cognitive behavioral movement, Aaron Beck and all these guys were influenced by Epictetus in the ancient Stoics. It's simply applied to our modern times. But these ideas work. And again, rule number one, just to say it out loud, is some things are within your control and some things are not, is what the Stoics taught us. Basically, nothing but your thoughts and your behaviors are within your control. So accept what's there and then choose the next wisest course. Never give up that agency, which is a good way to get burnout too. When I think my life sucks, I can't see a better future and I feel like I can't do anything about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then you're going to feel hopeless, which is your one-way ticket to depression and the burnout and all the other things that go with it. Brian, is a lot of the misery we're seeing right now because people are looking inward too much. They're spending too much time in self-analysis and they really should be looking outwards. Maybe. I think it's obviously a nuanced conversation. I think the bigger problem is people aren't looking inward really, truly. What they're doing is looking down at their screen. 
And so all I'm doing is every single spare moment, I'm either looking at the latest news, which is a horror show, or I'm looking at the latest social feed, which is social comparison, making me feel like I don't have a good life, or I'm constantly enervating myself with work emails or other kind of stimuli. And I'm not taking the time to get myself replenished, to take time away from the screens, to connect to my vision for my life, my higher self, et cetera. So I think, of course, there's truth in what you're saying that we can navel gaze, but I actually think for most people, they haven't done true, deep, thoughtful, iconoclastic introspection to think about what they want in their life. And this is objective one in the book. And again, I was an overperforming kid forever, and I dated a woman that went to Penn Med and all those things. A lot of high-performing, ambitious doctors are really good at conforming as well. And they want to win every award. They're the smartest kid in school from first grade through college into med school, work so hard. But you get to the top of that ladder, Covey says, and you look around, you're like, did I put it on the right wall? You get to the top of the first mountain, David Brooks style. Is this really where I want to be? Is there another mountain? Now, the beauty in the medical profession is what a noble, purposeful profession. Yet we can get so overwhelmed by the day-to-day stress that we forget the reason we're doing what we're doing and feel that time-sensitive overwhelm. But I would offer that, that slowing down, stepping back, and really asking ourselves what's important, who are we at we're at our best, um, and then protecting a life of deep meaning in accordance with that. I don't see people overdoing that. <laughs> I don't know what. I'd like to follow them around for a day. Let, let me see where you're spending your time. And let's see if we can get another 15, 30 minutes of productive, uh, true, healthy, wise introspection, right? Yeah. Let's talk about that because I just took my son to his first funeral. He's 12. And we began to talk about Brooks's idea of resume virtues and eulogy virtues. And you had so much in the book. You even have exercises to really experience that. Talk a little bit about that, Brian. Goosebumps. This is Stephen Covey was the first self-development book I ever read. So I was raised in a very conservative blue collar family, Catholic school for 12 years. And my father struggled with alcohol. His father struggled with alcohol and ended his own life. So I know it. And I, I contemplated ending my own life as well, as you know, from my work. I know the depths of despair un- frighteningly well. Thankfully, that's 25 years in the rearview mirror for me now. But I know what that feels like. And I also know what it feels like to feel a deep sense of meaningful joy. And I have a pretty good sense of what I did and what one may be able to do in order to build the scaffolding to create a life of, of true, sustainable joy. Still have highs and lows, et cetera. But Stephen Covey um, was my first inspiration. And um, as you know, I lean on his eulogy exercise to make the point around the objective one in the book, which is you got to know the ultimate game. The ultimate game isn't chasing initials after your name or square footage in your house or all the other things, obviously. But what do you want in your life? How do you want to be remembered? And are you living in integrity with that today? is the whole point of all of our work. And today's the day, again, to move from theory to practice. But I love that you're reflecting on that with your 12-year-old. And we come back to this all the time with our kids. And I think it's when we find ourselves disoriented from that vision of our best selves that we feel most disconnected and alienated and enervated and burned out. And then we have no chance to take a breath because tomorrow starts real quick. And then we just want to numb ourselves. So again, this process of stepping back. And even that, you know that this is the first exercise I have people do, is the eulogy exercise. Slow down. Begin with the ultimate end in mind. Then we can more intelligently ask whether the things you're doing right now are supporting you 
in pursuit of that ultimate end or not. And then we can start re-architecting your life such that you have that deeper meaning, et cetera. Brian, I first encountered your work with the Philosopher's Notes, and then I just continued with everything you're putting out. It's almost built for me. I love it so much. But the scaffolding of so much of it is built on the books that come out of social psychology. And social psychology right now is going through an enormous replication crisis, where most of the research that fueled the books that went into Philosopher's Notes are not replicating when they redo them. So are you at all worried that the scaffold that you've built some of this stuff on? Not at all. Not even in the slightest. I think, again, to recognize the truth in your statement, there's a lot of, I'm not sure most is, just to push a little bit, is accurate. I think a lot, but I'm not sure if most, if that's defined as the significant majority of it, over 51%. Things like power posing and whatnot, and other really important things that have perhaps been a little bit overplayed. We're not seeing the data that did prove the thing that they want to prove. But we've done our own research. We've done research with Sonia Lubomirsky and another well-being lab I can't mention that is one of the most respected institutions in the world. And we've replicated our own data. And again, when I look at what I'm trying to build heroic, the platform and the book on, it's ancient wisdom. And it's not just Greek and Roman, Stoic, but all of the traditions, Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism, Hinduism, Judaism, Christianity, of course, they all say the same thing which is know who you are at your best, live for something more than yourself, and put virtues in action. That's not a debatable idea. Modern science is founded on that as well. And then so many different ways I can go. The need to replicate the research, but our foundation is so broad, and I try to go to the things that aren't the flashy, exciting things. I go to the fundamentals. And there's no scenario where you're going to tell me that eating refined foods and sugar, for example, which by the way, Positive psychology in the medical field is way behind on. They don't get the importance of that. But there's no, that, that's not debatable. And because all of these sugar-driven businesses are, are crowding out the real research, which is something I'm much more concerned about. I'm much more concerned about the money that's being invested to prove bad science, in quotes, prove bad science that their foods aren't harmful, for example, and it's just a matter of exercising a little bit more. No, don't worry about our sugar consumption. Longer chat. It gets political fast. But again, our research has shown, we just completed research we haven't even really shared publicly. People that have never been introduced to the Heroic app, when they go through a randomized controlled study led by Sonia Mirsky at an advisory level and one of her top PhD students, 750 people split into three groups, control, weightless condition, 30 days. Next group gets the Heroic app, good luck with that. Third group gets the app and one hour of coaching once a week for 30 days. What we found was the group that got the coaching started in the 53rd percentile on flourishing, the Diener scale, which is the accepted scale that has been replicated, by the way, across different aspects of well-being, went from the 53rd percentile, which you'd expect, these are normal people, to the 70th percentile in 30 days. Those who got the app and hit one target in our app, which as you know, requires you to set up a big three protocol and then commit to it and do the thing you said you will do, we're 23% more energized than the control group. And that's parallel to what we had seen in prior studies. I love it. I, I, I am so happy we put that in. There is a hole in most people's lives right now. And some people say it's the absence of religion. Some people say it's just our modern times. And 
philosophy used to be what filled that hole 2,000 years ago. Now philosophy, for the most part, has gone to be a very esoteric ivory tower operation. I think what your book represents is applied philosophy. Do you think that could fill the hole in many people's lives? Goosebumps again. I think that for many people, I think faith traditions are incredibly important. And one can find it in whatever form they want, secular or any number of different ancient wisdom traditions. But I think that um, what I try to do is challenge people to get clarity on their philosophy. And one of the deepest honors of my life is that I have devout rabbis, Christians, Muslims, everyone across the spectrum who feel really inspired by the work we're doing. Because what I do is say, not that I don't care what you believe. I do very much, but I care that you know what you believe and I push you to live it. So I think the secular religion these days is science. And it's one of the reasons why I lean on science so much. And again, with all the asterisks that it's not perfect, it never will be, and we need to be eyes wide open and critical in our thinking. But most of these ideas are just, they're, they're ancient wisdom, modern science, common sense that need to be put into common practice in, very importantly, your own idiosyncratic way. So I think that we do have this deep hole in meaning because we're seduced to play the wrong game. And again, religion over the last 2,000 years has done a great job of at least giving you good hints on what a good life would look like, because it's not your Instagram followers. It's not fame, wealth, and hotness. But again, this is a 2,500-year-old challenge. Every single faith tradition and wisdom tradition has tried to address this challenge. The ancient wisdom philosophers that you and I admire so much were they were doctors of the soul. That's literally how the Stoics saw themselves. Anyway, again, long answer, but I think yes, and each of us has our own idiosyncratic, quote, faith and philosophical traditions. The question is, have you taken the time to get clarity on it? Are you living in integrity with it? And very importantly, are you in a community of people who share your values, which is a big part of our movement? You and I have in this chat, this is an amazing conversation. Anyone listening to this has more in common with other people listening to it than most people in their lives. Where are you meeting? Conversation isn't happening on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. That's insane. Like, these are just crazy times, you know? You know, I'm so grateful for the things you said, which brings me up to the next thing I want to talk about with you, Brian, which is gratitude. And you asked what works for my clients. That's another thing that works is because they're concentrating so hard on the miserable situation they're in, but having an outward focus of gratitude, finding things that are actually good in their life and they could be uh, count as blessings has a dramatic change in mindset. And you've concentrated so much in the book and in your courses on gratitude. So tell me how gratitude resonates with you. Yeah, let me set the context to the back of the book. We have the four cardinal virtues, again, of every ancient wisdom tradition on which positive psychology was formed. Wisdom, discipline, love, and courage. Discipline is, they would call it temperance yep. in the ancient world. Love, they would call justice, but that's a very weak word for love. I like so yours with, better. Thank you. Yeah, it just we tried to modernize it, right? And it's, what's that really mean? Temperance. Don't eat enough or too much or too yeah, little. I tried to explain temperance to my kid. Didn't work so well as explaining things like love. Discipline yeah. and self-mastery. I can understand that. When justice, what is that? It's important, but it's, it's transcended by love. Be a good person and, and care for people. Anyway, that's the context for the rest of the virtues of which gratitude is one that I'll talk about in more depth. But, but gratitude and hope, Positive psychologists, and I deeply respect the movement, Seligman, as Sheikh Semihai, and others, they, they say that those two virtues are tied for second as the most powerful to create a life of flourishing, gratitude and hope. 
And then curiosity and zest, energy, vitality is actually the number one virtue. As I talk about that a lot, again, physiology drives psychology. But gratitude, Robert Emmons is the leading scholar and researcher on the science of gratitude. What gratitude does for us is astounding. He literally says, eye-popping stats, conservative UC whatever researcher, simply keeping track of, of five things for which you are grateful once a week for something like six weeks. In his research, which I believe has been replicated a number of times, in his seminal research on the subject, you will boost your happiness by 25% versus those that just catalog five things that happen. You sleep better, you deepen your relationships, all the things you want to see more of in your life. So he says it's impossible to be simultaneously grateful and depressed in the moment. Now it's more nuanced, but in the moment in which you're practicing gratitude, my coach Phil Stutz has his own practice for it. He calls it grateful flow. When you feel a cloud of ick coming over your head and you're feeling all the things you don't want to feel, look around your your world. Right now, I can look at you on a screen. Somehow there are bits and bytes or whatever they are transmitted and around. I don't know how. So I'm looking at you. That's a miracle. Now, I can take that for granted or I can take that as granted as a gift. My life is a gift. Our connection is a gift. Unhappy people take things for granted. Their spouse, their health, their abundance, their job. We want to take them as granted. This is a precious life, not without challenges, but gratitude is profound as a practice to stabilize and then take the right action. Absolutely. And another virtue, and one of my favorite quotes from the book that you had brought to my attention was about humility. And the quote was, people who are humble don't think less of themselves, they think about themselves less. And that Wow, is that powerful. And it's so powerful beyond humility itself. I think it's actually happiness comes from that same prescription. Tell me a little bit about how that hits you. Goosebumps. That is a powerful quote. It's not about thinking less of yourself. It's about thinking of yourself less. And then your connection to to, um, happy people do that more is makes me think of Viktor Frankl. So when I first met John Mackey, Whole Foods, et cetera, we, we bonded on a Viktor Frankl idea where he said that one should not pursue success or happiness, that should ensue. And he says that's an unintended byproduct or consequence of devoting yourself to something bigger than yourself, which again is the idea of being heroic. The hero is not a victim. The hero is not, oh, whine, criticize, complain, gossip, and just the world sucks and I suck and I'm becoming a nihilist. It's, well, what am I going to do about it? And then devote yourself so wholeheartedly to whatever it is you've committed to, your work, your family, your own optimized energy, the intrinsic stuff. Be a better person. Deepen your relationships and make a contribution to your family. Pursue that all out. And oh, my goodness. Viktor Frankl says, happiness is going to chase you when you're in that pursuit. Another quote by Frankl was, between stimulus and response, there lies a space. And in that space lies our freedom. And so much of the problems that come up for my clients are due to reactivity. They're just reflexively responding to so many things in life. They don't have that space and therefore have lost their freedom. How do you cultivate that space between stimulus and response? Sleep. (laughs) It it may sound like a joke or whatever, but sleep. So when I am not well-rested, everything annoys me. It's very difficult to step in between stimulus and response. We can invite my wife in. She'll tell you all about it. I'm a different person when I'm not well-rested. 
when I'm not moving my body, when I'm not eating well. So we're back to the fundamentals. So again, that may sound too simplistic or trite, but it's powerful. When we are tired, we are going to have a really hard time stepping between stimulus and response, whether it's our kids or our spouses or, look, biologically, our hunger hormones, our ghrelin and our leptin are all disrupted. So you're going to have this compulsion to eat the foods that are not great for you, the, the refined, the sugary foods, when you're not well rested. So again, focusing on the control, control the controllables. And then you'll have the strength to more appropriately and wisely deal with the things that are much more complex. That's my fundamental practice. And then, of course, the obvious, oh, wow, I just got hit by life. What am I going to do? And then it's, I'm going to practice my philosophy. That's what a philosopher does. A lover of wisdom is a warrior of the mind, not a librarian of the mind. Now, I put myself out there as a philosopher in the etymological sense. I aspire to embody the qualities of my favorite heroes, Epictetus and Aurelius. I better practice my philosophy. Now, I'm not perfect, obviously, and I never will be, but I better. And again, now we're back to stoicism rule number one, stimulus and response. So something happens, perfect. It's human to have a, an immediate response. You get punched in the face or someone insults you. It's natural to have an immediate response. But after the one, two, three, four, five, ten seconds, dissipate, then what? Maintain your freedom to choose your response to that situation. You now have control over the next thought you have and the behaviors you take. Easier said than done. But the one word algorithm or the one word practices, arate, close the gap. What do you want is one of my frames as I call it targeted thinking. In any given moment, something happens. All right, what do you want? I don't want to be in an argument with my wife or with yelling at my kids or whatever, fill in the blank. I want to have a deep relationship in which, by the way, I embody my virtues of calm, confidence, joyful connection, other things that I aspire to embody. What am I going to do in this moment to be in integrity with that? Boom. And then, by the way, that challenge that I want to go away helped me become a better person. So I no longer resist it. I radically accept it, as Phil Stutt says, and he describes this as a discipline. Reactive discipline is what he calls it. You got to be focused and, again, disciplined in how you choose to respond to situations. But it all starts with the most basic fundamentals from my vantage point, and then you go out from there. Now, I know you're also a meditator, Brian. Do you feel that helps you in decreasing your reactivity? No question. No question. But again, I meditate after a good night of sleep. So last night, I'm in bed for nine hours got about seven hours and 40 minutes or whatever it was. Then I calm myself. I literally measure my oxygen saturation and my resting heart rate, 43, 100. Boom, I'm calm. I start my day on my own terms. I do not allow inputs into my consciousness until I have connected to my daimon, my best self. Meditation is an incredible practice for that, for triggering and knowing how to Flip the switch, I like to say, on your parasympathetic nervous system, which is the other thing that your community is experiencing more than anyone, constant fight or flight, constant. You need to get really good at knowing how to, in an instant, we call it flipping the switch. We can do it right now. Boom. I can invite the best version of myself grounded. I'm breathing deeply in through my nose, down into my belly, exhaling slightly longer than the inhale. Now I'm calm. In an instant, I can do that. And I'm going hard right now, creatively launching the book, et cetera. So I'm doing the dishes and I'm trying to find as much calmness as I possibly can. So I can be here with you and obviously intense, 
But I think medical professionals need that skill. Athletes do it. Watch a great athlete. Michael Jordan was the best at recovering. Boom. You just saw him and he's every time he had that whatever break. Tennis players. This is where the research came from as Tony Schwartz, Jim Moore studied the best tennis players. They tried to understand why some were better than others. There are a lot of reasons, obviously, but one of the most important was in between points in a tennis match, the absolute best of the best recover better. They have a very specific protocol. So if I was a doctor, I'd have a protocol, not just for serving my patients, but in between. When I'm walking from one room to another, I would literally have a protocol for that 15, 30, 60 seconds in which I'm breathing, I'm focusing my mind, I'm refreshing myself such that I can sustain it. That's the high amplitudes on, off versus burnout. As Laura and Schwartz talk about, when you can't make waves and recover deeply, to put it bluntly, you're screwed. Then burnout's just waiting for you. Oh my, are you preaching to the choir? Because this is, I teach protocols exactly on that topic. And I first encountered it with Josh Waitzkin's Art of Learning. And he talks about tension and relaxation. And when he gives the uh, anecdotes about uh, high-level jujitsu matches with the Grassis, they would be taking naps between their matches because they would go from pure relaxation to absolute highest level tension and then regress right back to relaxation. And that is the goal, right? To have it in your tank when you need it and then completely pull back to a state of parasympathetic relaxation. Navy Navy SEALs are the same. They're on a helicopter en route to being dropped off for their mission. They're napping. Pele, professional athletes, when they aren't going all in, they're napping. They're professional nappers. So that ability to flip the switch on and off is lost. And and again, if I'm looking at my phone and I'm blowing myself up with news or social media, I'm not recovering. And you are going to burn yourself out. I don't care whether you're a medical professional or an entrepreneur or anyone doing anything in the world. You can't sustain that pace forever. And that burnout, again, to go back to the very important question, I love your protocols and the tension um, and the ability to, and the relaxation, the, the ability to do that at will is a skill that's developed through repetition. Now, Brian, you talked about not being perfect. And a lot of your book concentrates on the idea of, yeah, winning is great. Losing's okay as well, because losing equals learning. And that's not a mindset most doctors share. To get to the point where they are required an intense level of perfectionism, and winning was all that mattered. And losing, it could be very detrimental to their mindset. Uh, how are you countering that in the book and your work? Again, playfully, how's that working for you? Again, I like to frame it up with Paul Ben-Shahar's wisdom. He has a book written on perfectionism called The Pursuit of Perfect. He differentiates two forms of perfectionism, and there are actually scientifically, from my understanding, two different forms of perfectionism. One is healthy, the other is not. So both forms of perfectionism have very high standards. That is very important. I'm not suggesting that we lower our standards. Full stop. I obviously have high standards. I'm a recovering perfectionist, full stop, in my own ways. But then you need, we need to know that the science is unequivocal. If you don't embrace the constraints of your, your reality, and you think that you actually can be and need to be perfect, you're going to be brittle psychologically, and you're going to be more likely to burn out, eating disorders, all the other things that we don't want to experience. So the difference between the unhealthy perfectionist and the healthy perfectionist, which he calls an optimalist, one who embraces the constraints of their reality. That's the difference. 
So he uses his own story as an example. He was a, I think he was an Israeli squash champion, but he couldn't be a world-class athlete training for four hours a day, five hours a day, a world-class teacher and educator, an author working 16 hours a day, and being a great husband and father, there weren't enough minutes in the day. He burned himself out until he realized he had to embrace the constraints of his reality. That's what I do. And the final metaphor here is, he says, your ideals need to be guiding stars. They're not distant shores. Your potential is asymptotic. You're never going to get there. There's no there. And embracing that, again, that's wisdom. We have the wisdom to bring the discipline and and the self-compassion and the love to quit shaming ourselves. Uh, But we do that within our family all the time. Winning and learning, mistakes are awesome, et cetera, et cetera. I love the way you said that. Yeah, the way I say the basically identical idea you just expressed is maladaptive perfectionism is concentrating on outcome, which we know from the Stoics. We have no control over. You release the arrow from your bow, you could do all of the training in the world, but if a gust of wind hits, then that is not under your control. You won't hit the target. You should still be just as happy if your fundamentals and training had gone into uh, a perfect release. And so outcome is not under your control, but process is. And perfectionists that concentrate on process. They become optimalists. They become adaptive perfectionists because that is under their control. They have complete control over their process of doing the right things, having the right mindset. And then whatever outcome comes, they shouldn't care. In fact, you should be just as happy with a good outcome as a poor one if your process was correct. And I still have yet to reach that point. But at the very least, meaning I'm all process and everything you said, yes. And I look forward to reaching that state of enlightenment. It still hurts when you don't hit the target. But you got to know that an archer goes to the range. They're not going to hit bullseye in every target. If they did, the target was too close. Push it back. But then what I like to do is to take the pain. And again, even right now, we got some very aggressive goals with the book launch. I want to hit those targets. The outcome is very important to me. I've lined up for reasons bigger than me in terms of our movement and all those things. Now I'm all in, but I'm simultaneously not attached. But when we don't hit those outcomes, my son cries. If he loses a chess match, when he's 10 years old, he's he's just when he cries, it's emotionally devastating for him in that moment. But then what we do is we embrace it. We step back and say, all right, you didn't get the outcome you wanted. What can we learn from that? And we get very specific. Was there anything that you could have done a little differently Because we don't want to waste that data. And next time, and we'll use the emotion for our good, which is he wants to win. Perfect. Then let's learn from that mistake. Don't shame yourself. Embrace the the experience. But then what can we do a little differently next time? And that, frankly, of everything I've done parenting-wise, I'm most proud of. To be able to operationalize the growth mindset and the truth in, this isn't a nice-sounding aphorism. We win or we learn. And learning is winning, so we win or we win. Now, of course, we still, quote, lose. But if you do it right, that data makes you better. And to be able to make that connection in our lives and with our kids is huge. Then you get a fearlessness. Then you embrace it and you want to make more mistakes. You want to lose more matches. You want to show up at your edge. And again, medical professionals need to approach this in their own way, of course. But you're obsessed about being in the position to do your best, not looking perfect from the outside and thinking everything's going to fall apart if you make any sort of mistake, et cetera. I love it. Brian, I genuinely hate most business books and personal development books because they're 
all story and then 1% actionable information. And it's just, I could read the eight pages of the book that actually tell me something that could actually change my life and save myself a lot of time. Your book is not like that. You actually wrote a book that is just actionable information all the way through and you jam packed it like far beyond any expectation. It says volume one. I don't know how you're going to fit a volume two in there because there's just so much in volume one. What led you to write a book in that way? I know you were inspired by The War of Art. Were you also inspired by The Enchiridion, a, a book that is truly one that is a weapon in your hand? Talk to me a little bit about, about the process here. Yeah. I mean, it was a it was an ugly process, to put it directly. The creative process often is. I thought I was going to write, again, I don't mean this disparagingly, but a normal 200 to 300 page fluffy book is how I described it. You know, here you I go. Know what you mean. Here's a normal book. Publisher approved. You know what I mean? Everybody expects a 300 page book. And I was like 70% of the way done with that normal kind of book. And I just got to a point where I'm like, that's not the book I want to write. People were excited about my potential book because I'd waited so long to write one. And then I asked our team, hey, tell me the ideas I've taught you that have most changed your life. I just want to make sure that I'm hitting those themes in the book. Anyway, our team gave me three, five, 10, each person, three, five, 10. Michael, my right-hand guy, gives me like 50, 100 ideas. But they were all different. There were very little overlap. This idea changed this woman's life, but those ideas changed this person's. And I realized I didn't want to leave any of them out. And as you know, I've spent a long time reading a lot of books. I've distilled a lot of ideas. So anyway, I decided I wanted to write a book that could truly help transform people's lives. So I was playing around with what it would be. It wound up becoming a book featuring 451 of the most potentially life-changing ideas I've studied, ancient wisdom, modern science. I referenced 200 different authors in the book. It's a thousand pages long, yet it's hyper-readable. So each chapter I've been told, and I, I intended it to be, each chapter is a page or two or three long, and I get in and out. So I'm a busy guy. You're a busy human being. Anyone listening to this we got to deliver more wisdom in less time. That's my ethos. I don't want to waste a second of your time. So we tried to densely pack it and then overload it with wisdom that was super practical. I'm excited about it and I'm proud of it and, and feel really grateful for the response we've gotten so far and hopeful that it will, at least one idea will transform someone's life. If not in aggregate, truly activate their potential and then give them that scaffolding we talked about. And, and just that sense of deep, calm, anti-fragile confidence that they have what it takes to create a life of meaning such that, again, we can literally change the world together. That, that's what drives me in everything we do. That's beautiful. I'm, I'm obviously simpatico to these ideas. And a lot of the people I work with are as well. They're open to it. And it, it, they just they suck it up. It's like water on a hot desert day. But there's a lot of people out there that are really in a mindset of cynicism and of dismissal of anything as genuine or in their words, they'd probably say anodyne, love, oh, come on. That, what do you say to those people who probably need it the most, are least likely to pick up something like your book, which I'm like, wow, this is the way. And they're like, this is a bunch of claptrap. This is just too, this is juvenile. Brian, what do you say to those people? I don't talk to those people. At all. <laughs> Bless you. Every, everything, leadership one-on-one. I'm not trying to make everybody happy, but I think that there's a diffusion of adoption in any idea in a diffusion of resonance as well. So there's going to be the asymptotic positive side, which is, oh my gosh, this is amazing. We're blessed to have a lot of that feedback. Then there's, which is the innovators, the early adopters fall into that. Then you go to the other side of the bell curve and you're going to find critics 
then you're going to find cynics, and then you keep on going, you're going to find nihilists. And I, I respect everyone's journey. I've been in, in each of those places, and, and I'm not for everybody. I'm an acquired taste, as how I like to put it. Like it or love it. You know, I'm an intense guy, but I also try to ground it in ancient wisdom and modern science. And I'm proud of the, the people who find resonance in my work and also the spouses of people. Maybe their, their spouse is into this, but they're not. And they think everything they do is stupid, but they read my stuff or watch my stuff. They're like, wait, 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 this guy actually is a little different here. I'm proud of that. So I've been really committed to not being that guy. That's the normal self-helpy whatever. And again, I may come across as that guy to people in a gut, but I've tried hard not to be a human being who's candid on my own challenges. And I've worked hard to try to create something that is worthy of being in dialogue with you. But yeah, it's not, this won't be for everyone, yet I'm excited about the possibility that people who otherwise might not be into, quote, this sort of thing, open it up and you can open it up again anywhere and be look at it and say, you know what, that's actually, that makes sense. Hard to argue with that. And that's how I approach it. But the most powerful thing is you. So my thing is, when we work with our coaches, our whole thing is don't proselytize. Don't go out and tell people you've got it all figured out and you want to coach them or they should do this or that. Slowly change your life. Be the radiant exemplar. And what we found is, you know, that when you, we do that and you suddenly get a little wiser and a little bit more disciplined and loving and courageous and all these things, people feel it. Then they lean into you and say, what are you doing? And then maybe there's an invitation of what? I tried a lot of things and I found resonance in whether it's Arte or Heroic or whatever. I always go there. There you go. I mean, what's like Aurelia said, right? Spend a little more time talking about how to be a good man. Be one. That's Period. Yeah. But then having the Epictetus's in Chiridion, or however you want to pronounce it, that his classic manual, we translate as a handbook, but it meant something closer to ready at hand in the sense of a hand dagger or a tool or a weapon. So I wanted this book to have a gravitas to it, to go with the readability, that it literally is ready at hand to help you face the inevitable challenges of modern life with wisdom, discipline, love, and courage. And I'm excited about the early feedback and hopeful that will be true for many. I love it. I can't thank you enough for your time here. I so enjoyed this conversation. That was really, really spectacular. You're great, man. That was such, that was tied for first as my first, my favorite. That was phenomenal, man. It was fantastic.